Welcome to Alive and Kicking, the 90s football podcast. The podcast that's more 90s than those frosty bike spokes you used to get at the bottom of your cereal. They were great, weren't they? My name's Ash Rose, your host and guide on what is the original 1990s football podcast. Thank you very much for joining us and hitting that download button just like an Eric Cantona kung fu kick. It's great to have you on this ride where we go through the the brilliant, the amazing and the very bonkers world of 1990s football. And we're in the midst of a countdown. Yes, bloody love a countdown. We are going back to back, season by season, looking at the decade that changed football. And I don't think there's more poignant to that phrase than last time out when we spoke about 1992 93, the season, the advent of the Premier League, the influence from Sky, the Man United title win their first for 26 years. It was all wrapped up in that show. Really good show. We had Matthew Christ on it, which is, he's fast becoming our sort of Man United 90s voice. And it's great to hear his views of that famous season. Um, he, he does some great 90s articles for, for Football Whispers, so check those out. He'll be back on our 94, 95 podcast when we talk Blackburn Man United. We're giving him a bit of a rest this week. I know he's uh, it's still a Man United laden season, 93-94, but we've given the pod a slightly different flavour, so he'll be back with us next time out. We also had on the show Matthew Davis, good friend of mine from the Gorilla Position podcast on TalkSport, if you're a fan of WWE, that's something me and Matt are part of, but nice to hear his views. Um, well, not so much for him, because it was a Nottingham Forest season where they got relegated. It was Brian Clough's last season, but it was good, nice to hear those kind of different views on what was that season. Um, I'm a bit of a... I like Forest. They're like a little soft spot for me, especially later in the decade, which we'll get to. Probably get Matt back on, actually, when we talk about um, Stan Collymore, Brian Roy, and the great Steve Stone. A great story you told as well about Stan Collymore almost signing for Forest that season, and instead they bought Robert Rosario. I mean, come on, Robert Rosario. Is there a more 90s name than that? I looked at his sticker and I put it on Twitter and he had these slick black hair and stuff. Yeah, very, very 90s. Um, so, yeah, great show. Matt Lorenzo was good to hear on the phone. He's one of those voices, actually. Um, when I spoke to him, I was like, wow, really took me back to that decade, especially because he's not really on TV anymore. I know he said he's doing his stuff for Football Whispers and it's great to still have him around doing stuff. But when I heard it, it really took me back to watching Sky Soccer Weekend on a Friday night in my house. Although it reminds me, actually, quick little story. Um, I used to want to, we used to have one TV in the house at the time, which had Sky. Um, so on a Friday night at six o'clock, I always wanted to watch Sky Soccer Weekend. My sister, however, wanted to watch some NAF game show that I think was on Sky One at the time with Bruno Brooks, of all people. There's a name from the 90s. He's the second time I've mentioned him on a podcast in the last couple of weeks. How random. Um, but he was doing a game show. I think it was called Love at First Sight or some sort of really crap 90s dating show that my sister loved because we only had one sky and my mum and dad had to be fair I had to alternate weeks so one week we were allowed to watch Sky Soccer Weekend and I'd have to listen to my sister complain the whole way through it and then the next week I'd have to sit through Love at First Sight knowing that I was missing all the juicy footballness on Sky Sports until I got my my own TV and Sky in my own room so yeah that that's uh yeah damn you Bruno Brooks for making me miss Matt Lorenzo in the 90s every other week <laughs> um a little couple of things that uh, we didn't mention on the show it was so much wasn't there 1993 there's so much to get through um what with the Champions League the, the stories with Arsenal we didn't really talk about Arsenal's um Cup winners, cup win. We mentioned it, but we could have gone in more detail as well. So sorry, Arsenal fans, if we didn't get to that. But we did a lot of Arsenal on our 1991 show, and we will get to more when we talk about their double season later as well. So, uh, but I wanted to mention the team of the season that did that today for 93, 94. But I don't think we got there 
for 92-93 and since the PFA awards have been slung out at the moment I thought it was quite apt the team of the season for 92-93 was Peter Schmeichel in goal David Bardsley at right back uh, obviously QPR had that amazing season um, but I don't think I went lyrical enough on that but top London club in fifth place Paul McGrath and Gary Pallister in the centre and Tony Dorigo and then Roy Keane Gary Speed Paul Lintz and Ryan Giggs that's some midfield isn't it and then Alan Shearer and Ian Wright up front so that was a sum sum team um, when you look back on that the 92 uh, 93 season um, but we're moving on today but before we did um, I need, just want to say on a sad note obviously last week we uh, had some really really horrible news in the world of football that saw the death of Ugo Ekiog absolutely devastating really for the football family um, I remember seeing the tweet uh, last week saying they'd been taken ill um, with uh, cardiac arrest and even that surprised me you know a man of his such young age and obviously in in condition seems he's still coaching at Spurs and then to hear that he sadly passed away horrible news for his for his friends his family for the world of football um, I interviewed him many moons ago um, remember him being a very very nice guy and that's what's come out from everyone in in the football world and it's just very sad he obviously was a big part of Aston Villa in the 1990s I think I called him part of the furniture really which he was he won two league cups um, for Aston Villa but in 94 which we uh, we cover today and, and 96 later on um, and obviously went on to play for England and Middlesbrough and just a really really sad story so all uh, condolences go out to friends and family of Ugo Ekio we recorded the show before it happened so we have Joel Young this week who's a Borough fan who Ugo played for later in uh, the decade, or no, just after the decade, so it would have been the 2000s. Um, we would have mentioned that, obviously, but we recorded that before this happened. Um, so, yeah, very, very sad. Um, I'll segue that way into talking about the show on, on the lighter note. And, yes, Joe Young is back, our Borough fan, our Janino man, head of the Janino fan club, or I think we called him the grandfather clock this week. I don't think he liked that, so maybe that won't stick. But, yeah, he's back to talk 93-94 with us. And we've got another debut as well, which means a new football CV, which we love talking about. Uh, Mark Godfrey, who is the editor of Football Pink. Now, if you don't know what Football Pink is, Mark does tell us a bit about it on the show but just I've got the copy in front of me here and the reason we got Mark on especially at this time because their latest issue their 16th issue is all about football in the 90s right up our street obviously yeah it's great it's got some great stuff in there uh, about all a plethora of subjects the class of 92 stadiums uh, Mark himself as he talks about does a article on music and football in the 90s which is obviously very poignant we've we've done some pods on that in the past um, some goalkeeper kits I can see as I'm flicking through um, and even some stuff on um, some unlikely winners, fantasy football league, everything we talk about on this podcast, some great articles in there. And Matthew Christ, who was on our show last time out, mentioned he did a piece as well on the Anglo-Italian Cup. Uh, haven't got to read that yet, but I'm sure it's amazing. I'm going to read it on the train today. But yeah, get yourself a copy of the new Football Pink, because it is, if you're a 90s fan, which I'm assuming you are, because you're listening to this podcast, it's right up our street. So get a copy of that. Like I say, Mark tells us more on that on the show. We've got a guest as well. Um, it's a little bit more QPR, I'm afraid, but it's it's a really good interview. Um, I tried to get him for night two, night three, because it was more kind of the, the fifth place finish. But we've got him for this week, um, this show. Uh, former QPR left back and later Fulham as well, Rufus Brevet joins me on the line. And uh, great to talk to Rufus. He's a really interesting lad. Um, lad, <laughs> you can lose in the football term there. So yeah, that's to come. Um, again, I'm going to do the interview first, then we'll go into the show. So we're kind of mixing up a little bit, but we'll see how that works uh, like we did last time out and, and, and going forward. So yeah, 
that's coming up. So before we get into the meat of the 1990s football sandwich that is laden with 1993-94, and yes, includes a little bit of chat about World Cup 94. So ding, 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 ding. Get your bingo cards at the ready because that means I get to mention the greatest kit of all time. Obviously, if you want a full version of our views on World Cup 94, get back in the archives and listen to our, our proper podcast, or proper as our full podcast, I should say, on that, which we did last season. One of the highest rated one, actually, uh, when we talked about USA 94. We had Ryan Bailey and Amar from the uh, from Squawkers, who was at the time, on the line to talk about that. And we had Daniel Amicarci on the phone, which was great as well. So, yeah, go down and look at the archive for that and a couple of others that we mentioned on the show. Uh, you can find us, of course, on Twitter and on Facebook at AK90s. Um, please drop us a like, drop us a follow. It's always good to keep the, the football nostalgia family growing, as I like to say. There are increased competition out there, which uh, I've mentioned briefly. So, yeah, keep us in your thoughts. If you've got anything 90s coming up uh, or anything you found in your loft or your garage, stick them on Twitter. Um, we love seeing any old tat, any old nostalgia from the decade. It's great. All the previous episodes, as mentioned, are on uh, iTunes or SoundCloud or on our website at AK90s. Um, you can check them out there. Please do. And if you're on iTunes, it always does really, really, really help us um, to give us a five-star review and rating because we want to keep this show going. So please, 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 please do that for us if you are an iTunes person like myself. Okay, so let's get on with today's show. We are talking 1993-94. We're speeding through the decade at the moment um, before we get to the end of the season. Um, I'm sure this will, will go over in the summer anyway because we've got some new podcast plans, some new guests and some other really exciting irons in the fire that I'll talk to you more about when I know more confirmation of what we're doing. But yes, here is 1993-94. But first, here's me speaking to Rufus Brevet earlier today on Alive and Kicking. My name's Ash Rose. Enjoy the show. Rufus Brevet, welcome to Alive and Kicking. Thank you very much for joining us today. How are you doing? Yeah, very well, thank you. Yourself? I'm very well, thank you. Yes, we're taking you back to uh, a decade that seems quite far away now, doesn't it? But uh, the 90s, um, we'll talk oh, QPR mainly, me. obviously. But so that's starting I, don't I don't know if I can remember that far back. I'll give it a go. <laughs> I'm sure we could all remember your haircut, but we'll get on to that. <laughs> Uh, you started the decade at Doncaster, obviously. And um, how did yeah. the move to QPR and then, obviously, the first division come about? And what do you remember about it? Yeah, I just remember the the, the, the Doncaster manager was uh, Billy Bremner, and you know there was talk of I think Leicester had been had been looking at me, so I got a call into into his office, and he said, "Oh, we've accepted a bid," and I was just expecting it to be Leicester, and uh, turned out to be QPR. Um, which was a bit of a bit of a shock, um, and I just I went down to to Queens Park Rangers the next day on the train, went on my own, and uh, met up with Bobby Gould and Don Howe, and uh, you know it was just miles away from from where I'd been at Doncaster. You know when I turned up at the ground and and things like that, it was just just unbelievable. <clears throat> What are your early memories of those days at QPR? I mean, I remember a very memorable victory at Anfield in your very early days at Rangers. Yeah. Um, what was it like just sort of jumping into the fire at such a, a huge division and obviously going to grounds like Anfield? Yeah, it was, it was, you know, it was surreal because I'm like, I'm watching people like Gary Lineker, you know, on TV. And then two weeks later, I'm marking him when, when I'm playing against Tottenham. You know, it was... Uh, was surreal, and obviously there were some, um, some some good players at, at Queens Park Rangers as well. You know, at, at Queens Park Rangers, look at that Mark Falco, 
Um, I remember Roy Wegley scoring an absolute worldie, and I think it was against Leeds. I'm not yeah, sure when he I just remember dribbled, it vividly, past, yeah. Yeah, dribbled past everyone. And then a week later, I'm sat in the change room with him. Um, it's you know, it was a uh, great memories, and it was uh, a great time. It definitely was that that early period. We talked about ninety two, ninety three as well last week on the show and that is memorable because QPR became top London club I mean I don't That's think right, gets, yeah. it gets lauded as much as it should because back in that day you know you finished above Arsenal and, and Chelsea mm. and Tottenham how good was that team? It was a massive massive achievement you know I, you know, Joe Francis was you know attention to detail he did everything was everyone in the team knew what they were doing um, you know whether you wasn't in the team or not when you came in, you knew your job. And, you know, it was a great, great squad, squad of players. And to finish top London club, as you say, you know, it, I don't think it's, it doesn't get the plaudits it deserves, really, because, yes, we finished a month ahead of some very, very good teams. Mm-hmm. And you yourself, you were battling out with, with Clive Wilson. He's another player that I think goes overlooked. Never got an England cap. How good was he in, in your position? He was, you know, at the end... <laughs> You know, he played in my in my position, and obviously I wanted to play. But when someone like Clive Wilson's playing, you can't knock on the manager's door and say, "Why am I not playing?" Because he'll just say, "Look at Clive Wilson," because he was probably playing some of the best football in his career. And I think mm. it must have been 30, 31, 32. I'm not too sure, but you know, he was he was very very good. And as I say, even when I came in, there was one game I came in against Manchester United and. I had a really, really good game. Next day we're playing. Next week we're playing Tottenham, and then I wasn't even in the squad. Do you know what I mean? Because he brought Clive Clive Wilson back in, and you know what can you say? Because he was, as I say, probably one of the best left backs at, at that time. The way he was performing, definitely. And Jerry Francis as well. I mean, we were talked last week about how he was linked with the England job. How good was mm. he as a manager? And are you surprised that he's not in the in the game managing anymore? I'm very surprised that he's not managing. I, 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 I live down the road from Jerry and I see his wife quite often in Marks and Spencers. But no, he's, you know, I think he's just doing some, well, he was at Stoke doing con, some consultancy work. I think I'm not too sure, yeah. but, you know, it, it, it's, it's a crying shame that he's not involved in the game because, you know, what he brings to the game, what he knows about the game is his knowledge, the way he sets his teams up. You know, it is a, a crime that is is not He's not managing somewhere. Mm. Keep it were consistently a top 10 side in the mid-90s. We talked to 93, 94 when they finished in the top 10 as well this week. But, I mean, what the obvious downfall was Jerry's leaving and then Ferdinand obviously getting sold. Do you think that was such a massive gap that they were never able to fill at that stage? I think it was a situation where you, you've got someone like Les Ferdinand in your, in your team and you, you sell him. How do you replace him? Mm. With all, you know, they tried to replace him with. I think Danny Dicho came in, did really well. But you know, to to fill someone like Les Ferdinand Boots was was going to cost money, and you know they didn't they didn't replace Les Ferdinand, and that was, I think, you know, a, a massive downfall because you 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 didn't just miss his goals, you missed everything about him, his character, the way he was around the changing room, completely missed everything, and then he came back against Newcastle and and, um, and I think he scored a couple of goals didn't he I know he scored one yeah I think he did yeah you know, lost his road yeah yeah, yeah. so um, it just uh, salt into the runes really yeah. 
Yeah, talking of players, I mean, would Les be up there with the best that you played with in that era? And who are the best you, you played against in, in the 90s? I think the best that that I've played against, um, I think would be some... I mean, Thierry Henry, I think, would, would be up there. Yeah. Um, and I think that I've made, that I've actually marked would probably be Andre Kanchelski at Manchester United. Okay. Um, because he was he was quick, direct. Um, even though I did really well against him, he, he was a very good player. But if you look at, say, someone like Thierry Henry, you know, he just he speaks for himself, really. And I think playing with Les Ferdinand is, is definitely up there. Um, I think you'll be looking at Les Ferdinand and... Louis Sahar, I think, are the two of the best players that I've played with. Very good. Uh, at Keeper, as well as I mentioned, you're remembered for your dreadlocks, of course. I, I, I wondered who had the better dreadlocks, you or Trevor Sinclair? Well, Trevor had them before me, so <laughs> I think I think I overtook him. I think, um, <laughs> but no, Trevor's Trevor's were were good. I, I um, he had them way before me. I had nowhere when I joined QPR, so. Uh, I grew my dreads by accident. So, yeah, <laughs> you were there at the club when uh, Trev scored that uh, the goal that he d- never talked about as well. I mean, how, how good it's one of the best goals you've seen on the pitch. It's without doubt the best goal that I have ever seen, and I think you know when you when you look at that goal and study that goal. I mean, he he used to try it in training all the time, and it never used to come off. He'll, he'll say that he put him in the top corner. He never did. But then if you look at study that goal, the height that the ball came in, the way that he had to adjust himself. And the connection was just perfect. And the way it flew into the goal, the minute when I remember when he went to do it, I thought, oh, here we go again. And then it just went in. It was just disbelief. Absolute disbelief. Oh, absolute world-class goal. It definitely was. Uh, we can't leave without talking quickly about Fulham. You, you went there at the end of the decade. How was it sold to you? Because you were there very much as part of the, the rise of the club, but you dropped a division to go there. So how was it sold mm-hmm. to me? I just got a phone call. I mean, I got a phone call from, from Ray Offord telling me that uh, they've accepted a bid from from Fulham. I, I told Ray Offord that I didn't want to leave Queen's Park Rangers. He basically said that I had to go. I had to go and speak to Kevin Keegan. Five minutes later, Kevin Keegan rings me. I uh, And then within an hour, I'm down at Craven Cottage speaking to, to Kevin Keegan. Um, and basically, you know, he had big plans. I think they'd, they'd signed Chris Coleman. And what he said to me was, this is, the li- this is the big club around the corner from your little club. That's what he said. And I started laughing. And he said to me, you'll be, you're laughing now, but in a few years you won't be laughing. And that's how I remember him saying that to me. And then I went back to Queen's Park Rangers and I told him that I didn't want to go again. And I think it was Clive Berlin who was the, um, the chief exec then. And he said to me that uh, if you don't go, you'll be playing in the reserves. So, you know, that was that that obviously sold it for me. I had to I had to leave, and you know, I think a lot of QPR fans think that you know I just walked out and didn't want to be there. That's not the case, and that's actually what happened. And then, but look, in saying that, I've gone to just down the road, and we're at I think at six seven years there again, and they were magic magical times, emotions, playing under uh, John Tagana, who's you know, with one of the best managers that I've played under. Mm. And, you know, it was it was great times. Mm. Well, we were certainly sorry to see you leave. But what are you up to nowadays? I see you've gone back into management, haven't you? Well, yeah, I manage a semi-professional football club, uh, Hamworth Villa. We've just finished 
finished the league. We finished third in the league, which you know isn't isn't too bad. My first full season there, so hopefully I can we can kick on next season and get promoted and and climb the climb the pyramid. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for talking to us, Rupert. It's been great hearing from you. Appreciate that. Thanks. Yes. Thanks a lot. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye. Okay, we're going another step in our season by season guide now here on Alive and Kicking. We're on to ninety three ninety four. Um, I don't think it's the most controversial season, but as I was chatting with one of our guests, Peripod, there's some fun stuff to talk about. That's introducing him. He's a familiar voice to those who listen to us regularly here on AK90s. Part of the furniture of our AK90s. Not quite the grandfather clock, but not far off it, eh, mate? Um, <laughs> TV, TV and social bod, soon to be somewhere near you, Borough fan, Janino fan club member, Joel Young. How you doing? I'm very well, Ash. How are you? I'm very good. Good to hear your voice. Oh well, it, you know it's nice to be here. You know, I'm, I'm, it's nice to do something related to football that isn't going to have me crying into my uh, teacup. You know. Well, yeah, well, no, we, we have to keep it nineties, but it's not a good time for Borough right now, is it? You can't score a goal. <laughs> no, it's 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 been better, but you know we've uh, we, we scored a goal and everything, so you know things are <laughs> it's things looking are slightly up. looking at. Slightly looking at. And joining them, we have a debutant, and uh, which is always fun here on AK nineties. He's the editor of a brilliant football fanzine, we don't hear much of them anymore, called The Football Pink. They've got a 90s special that literally came out today, so we'll hear more about that in just a second. But welcome to the show, Mark Godfrey, how you doing? Uh, I'm alright, Ash, thank you for having me on. Thank you for coming on. So yeah, you're an Everton fan, so we'll get to talk about a definitely interesting season in 93-94 in just a bit. But The Football Pink, mm. tell us firstly about the, the magazine, the fanzine and, and the new issue. Uh, yeah, it's a quarterly fanzine, we've been going about four or five years now and we try to um, do sometimes we we choose different themes hence for example this time the English football in the 90s theme but we like a good eclectic eclectic variety of different articles and uh, yeah it's going it's been going very well so um, yeah hopefully we can spread the message a bit more with this new issue yeah I mean I think it's I mean obviously we've kind of cashed in on ourselves over the last season or so about 90s football and I, I, you know cheap plug I've written a book about it as well but what for you what makes you decide to do an issue on 90s football um, well, of course, this year it, we're going to have the celebration, if that's the right word, of the 25th anniversary of the Premier League's course, creation. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I turned 40 recently and, and every decade or so, a new decade becomes something that's ripe for the nostalgia treatment. Yeah. And the 90s, which to me seems like yesterday, has now become one of those things that we celebrate the music of the time and look back fondly at um, at all the different bits and pieces. So I thought that's probably a very good reason or a couple of good reasons to uh, to choose that as the theme for this current issue. No, I'm well, absolutely in agreement here. Joel, it's, it does seem like yesterday, but as we always say, a decade that really changed, didn't it? Changed football forever, as we always say. Sure, changed, changed on and off the pitch significantly. Yeah, definitely. Some say for the good, some may differ in their opinion. Yeah, so well, we'll talk more about that a bit later, but that's firstly, um, we'll get your football CV, um, as we do here on here. So you're an Everton fan, your favourite Everton's player, Everton player of the 90s? Oh, I could talk forever about this, but I'm going to go for a slightly obscure one and say Joe Parkinson. Oh, okay, yeah. Oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> I, 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 one of the first ever away games I went to, Everton 4, Middlesbrough 1, 
that mean Joe Parkinson clattered Janino in the first two <laughs> minutes, and then it was Andre Kanchelskis versus Chris Morris. So I'm just going to go and sit in the corner while we discuss this. Thank yeah, you very you much. You do that. You well, Kanchelskis would have been my second choice. Yeah, you can't upset Janino. It doesn't help. Joel's already had a guy at Brian Dean on this show for upsetting Janino, so we can't do that. But yeah, carry on, Mark. So tell us about Joe Parkinson. Yeah, he was a very typical Everton player of that mid-90s period. We talk about the Dogs of War under Joe Royal, um, where all of our midfielders, uh, he famously said they would tackle a crisp packet if it was blowing across Goodison Park. And he was very much that kind of player. Quite young, came from Bournemouth, I think, and um, was actually a much better football player than people gave him credit for. Um, And he bought into the whole Everton ethos of the time, you know, very much backs against the wall. Um, unfortunately, got a, a bad injury that, that stopped his career just as he was starting to get going. So, yeah, he, he was kind of an unsung hero during that time, just after 93-94. But, um, yeah, I, I, I very much liked him. I, I would Kanchelskis was another favourite. Uh, Andy Hinchcliffe, as well, would have, was a contender. He uh, His corners were as good as a penalty a lot of the time when he was knocking him into to big Duncan Ferguson. So, But I'll, I'll stick with Joe Parkinson. Yeah, that was a good choice. I think, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure, we did a show on uh, sort of players that didn't quite fulfil their potential uh, earlier in the season with Ralph Welsh. And I think he picked Joe Parkinson as one of his players. Because you're right, the injury curtailed his career, didn't it? But he was a big part of that team and, and much was expected of him. It was, and there was a little bit of talk uh, in the build-up to Euro 96 of him getting an England cap, but that's exactly at the moment where he got his injury. And from 96, I don't think he played again. Yeah, big, big shames happens when that happens with those injuries. Um, And overall, outside of Goodison Park, your your favourite player of the 90s? Um, It was between two. Um, I would say Marco van Basten, but his his career kind of spanned the 80s and the 90s mm. and of course he was forced to retire to retire early and uh, but I would go for Zinedine Zidane yeah it's not a name we actually get a lot I think because he's quite late into the 90s obviously the 98 World Cup um, and mm. then going into the 2000s with, with Real Madrid but I mean just in that World Cup he was immense wasn't he he was outstanding and I was lucky enough to see him play for Bordeaux before uh-huh. he'd gone to Juventus and I remember him think, thinking what a great player he was and of course in the World Cup, he was he was just the star of that tournament, and from there was just such a such a great um, uh, player with such great finesse. He was very much a Joel memories as a Dan as well. Great player, eh? Better than uh, it, oh. it, did he offend Janino at any point? I don't think did he. I, I don't I don't ever recall it. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, maybe he didn't play that World Cup, did he, Janino? So yeah, so that's. <laughs> Was he there? I don't know. He might have been injured. I can't remember. He was certainly in the adverts. He was in the before. yeah the, the airport advert, wasn't he? If I remember yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, let's move on then. We'll talk 1993-94. Um, setting the same in Man United had just won the, the Premier League the season before and we talked about the Premier League and the whole new ball game. Joe, quickly on 92-93 because I know we tried to get you there but our schedules couldn't work because you are a bit of a TV expert when it comes to Sky. Is there anything in that poll we didn't mention or we didn't sort of... <laughs> go into about I was just, Sky in the Premier League. I mean, I was just saying, yeah, about the birth of it, because actually the, the whole idea of the Premier League came from Greg Dyke, who was at ITV at the time, which I know you did chat a little bit about. But I know that it, it, the story that you didn't mention was the famous, uh, you've got to blow them out of the water. Um, from Obviously, Mr. Alan Sugar was sitting on both sides of the table, essentially, being in charge of uh, Mr. Alan Sugar as he was, not Sir Alan as he is now. But obviously, with Sugar being in charge of Tottenham Hotspur, and also he, his company Amstrad was the main supplier of satellite dishes to uh, to Sky. 
So uh, when the deal was just about to go um, ITV's way, uh, Sugar, and he's now admitted this, so this is not anything uh, <laughs> slanderous or anything. No allegedly, but, uh, he's here. Yeah, no, no allegedly at all. He's, he's he's freely admitted it some twenty years after the after the fact. But he ran straight to the nearest payphone, probably not trusting his own mobile phone, and uh, was overheard shouting, "You've got to blow them out of the water!" And it turned out he was on the phone to uh, Rupert Murdoch. And so that is kind of one of the little sort of strange stories about how Sugar was sat on both sides of the table and how it ended up with uh, Sky over ITV. But originally it had been an ITV plan to... Uh, Greg Dyke had gone round and sort of wined and dined. Uh, everybody from what was what was then the Big Five, <clears throat> uh, Liverpool, Everton, uh, United, Spurs and Arsenal. And he'd sort of... It, it kind of come initially as an ITV idea of what what they were going to do. He was in charge of LWT at the time uh, to boost up viewing figures for, for LWT. So, yeah, so that was the only thing I wanted to add on that. But, yeah, absolute game-changing stuff, as we all know. Mm. And they were still kind of going for it in 93, 94, because still the early days. You still had Richard Keyes in those garish jackets and everything like that. But setting <laughs> the scene, I mean, the Charity Shield that year was the first season when they had a draw and it wasn't shared between the two clubs because they used to... No very much do charity when it was the charity shield back in the early 90s and, and share it but it was Man United 1 Arsenal 1 went to penalties that Manchester United won Dave Seaman actually missed a penalty if you remember oh, I've written that what? down you know I thought that was going to be I thought I was going to be clever sneaking <laughs> no I got that one and they were and also wearing a lovely kit as well Arsenal one of the classic yellow kits um, we haven't got Man United fan on because I think we've given Matthew a rest and we didn't want to go too much into Man United and because I think obviously they won the double this season so we'll quickly talk about Man United and it was probably the, not an easy stroll. That's a bit unfair on Blackburn and Tail Chasers. But I'll, I'll come to you first, Mark. But that Man United win was probably the easiest they'd had up to that point, wasn't it? Mm, I think um, the win they'd had in 92-93 had finally got the monkey off their back. Because um, obviously they'd failed in 91-92 when they'd been probably the favourites for most of the season. And, and Leeds came back at them. They got the monkey off the back in 92-93. And 93-94, you could see in that team from what I remember that the confidence just had an, a massive boost from what they'd achieved the year before. And they were, they were head and shoulders above everybody else in the league that year. Um, and, and thinking back about over all the Manchester United teams of the last 20 odd years, I think that they, for me, they were probably the best. They were certain, I thought they were a very, very exciting team. They're very much the sum of all parts, weren't they? They had pretty much a, a very good player, if, if not, class player in every position that team I know they talk about it a season later being the real first massive Fergie team but I'm, I'm, I was looking at the team earlier and I was thinking very much a Man United team of that time weren't they they were and they were I don't I hate to use the the phrase old-fashioned but they had defenders who could defend mm. uh, good solid players in the centre midfield wingers and two forwards who played like one one played further forward and one dropped off a little bit it, it's not old-fashioned football it's just good well-blended team football and I think that was one of the many strengths of Alex Ferguson that he had at Aberdeen and he certainly brought with him and cultivated at Manchester United. Joe I mean we talk about Eric Cantona and the impact he made in the previous season but I think this season was really the catalyst for Eric Cantona becoming the king he scored 25 goals he was the PFA player of the year the first foreigner to win it um, and he really was Cantona's season, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think you look... Because obviously, at one point, United went, I think it was 14 points clear yeah. uh, in the league. And then Cantona went and got himself sent off in successive games. 
and he got a five-game ban for that. And that was when United had their real big wobble that year is, is when he wasn't there. I think they got through the uh, semi-final, the FA Cup semi-final with Oldham with the last-minute goal from uh, Hughes. But really, Cantona, once he came back, it was kind of game-set match, really. Um, he just That was the start of the real swaggering legend of Cantona that he became that year. You know, obviously the talisman of the team and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, I mean, Ferguson at the start of the season, I've been watching a few interviews, doing a little few sneaky bits today. And, uh, you know, he says the only thing this team needs is hunger. If they've got hunger, hunger they can win everything that they want to and go on to be legends. And I think he was he was right in that. You know, I think I think Cantona's first game back after the five game ban was uh, Manchester derby, and they were getting beat two nil, and they ended up winning three two. So you know that all that sort of talisman and that chemistry really, really, really coming together. Then the United, the only place they couldn't do it obviously was Europe because of the foreigners' rule at the time when Mark Hughes was counted as a foreigner and Brian McLeod was counted as a foreigner. And, um, you know, they could never really play the proper teams that they wanted to play. Yeah, and, and for you, that Man United team, I mean, as me and Mark were discussing, they, very, they were the best team in it. They were I mean, the best team always wins the league, but they very much were. You had a team that was pretty much stoppable with Eric Cantona in it, didn't you? Oh, God, absolutely. Yeah, um, I mean, again, it's that, it, it's, it's um, you know, a, a team even then that had Brian Robson on on the bench, who was probably coming to, coming to the end of his powers, but... But still, everybody in every position, just top-notch stuff. I think between this and the team a couple of years later, um, when Beckham and everybody came in, yeah. I think they're the two big Manchester United uh, sides for me. You just reminded me of Come On Your Reds when you started naming the players and that, that chorus or verse, oh, was it? Don't, we not can, we sing can it. get to We can get the terrible music this year because that was one of them and Ian Wright's <laughs> songs, another one that got recorded this year. So, you know, we can talk about that later. Yeah, do the right thing. Yeah, that was, yeah, and that terrible hat. Yeah, they went, they were top from game basically the fourth game they were top and they didn't slip from until the end of the season that says it all they won the league by eight points um, those games that you mentioned uh, Eric Cantona was sent off for that stamp on John McCarr and then a week later a tackle with uh, Highbury with Tony Adams it was two red cards and he said those five games the only wobble the only other wobble mark though was their uh, the Coca-Cola Cup defeat that was a bit of a surprise against Villa do you remember that game Villa were a good cup team at the time I think they did they won the Coca-Cola Cup twice in and around that period? Yeah, and they got it against think, Leeds, I think, two seasons later, yeah. Yeah, and, and they've run United close in the league before, and they had Paul McGrath and um, uh, I think Ray Houghton had probably gone to Villa by that time. Um, and so, so it wasn't, it was a surprise, yes, but it wasn't a, a, such a surprise given Villa's quality in the Cups at that time. No, it wasn't. And they won the FA Cup, though, after losing the Coca-Cola Cup. Well, they were wearing that brilliant Newton Heat half shirt in the Coca-Cola Cup final, which is one of my favourite Man United shirts as well. Um, Joe, the they Cup were wearing, final... They introduced the black shirt as well this year. Yeah, well, it played in that famous 3-3 draw with Liverpool. Well, that was this season, wasn't it? And they wore that black kit, one of the first teams to wear yeah. black kits. And referees Sharp were... view cam. Sharp view cam, yeah, as referees switched to green. You mentioned the Oldham game, Joel, that they were, they were just seconds away from losing that, the semi-final, when Mark Hughes popped up, only to win the replay. But the final, there was never in doubt in that one, was it? I mean, they beat Chelsea 4-0 to win the double. Chelsea had beaten Luton, plucky Luton in the semi-finals, who did those so well that season. Uh, but Glenn Hoddle's Chelsea had no chance in the final, did they? No, they got a, a real... It was one of those classic cup finals which where the other team turns up and... And gets a gets a proper thump, uh, and I I look at that year strangely as the start of 
the Chelsea that we know now, you know, coming from, I think it was the first time they got to an FA Cup final in quite some time. Don't ask me to uh, name the exact time. But I think that day, United just put on a masterclass. I can't remember who scored, who scored, actually. You're going to inform me. Uh, oh, you're, going to, you're putting me on the spot now, off the top of my head. Cantona got a penalty, I remember that. Um, Leclerc, Ince, and I'd have to Google the other one. But yeah, it was pretty <laughs> much... Can't knock it too. I don't. Well, yeah, it was forty. It was, it was comfortable victory. The double, the first time that we'd seen the double in the nineties as well. First for Manchester United. I think that's just. I mean, go and just finish on Manchester United, and we'll talk more about them in, in future pods. Obviously, with the treble coming at the end as well. Mark, for you, I mean, if you could pick a player other than Cantona, who do you think summed up Man United in that season? Um, I'll go with the Everton connection again, and I'll say Andre Kanchelskis because I think. He he epitomised what United were about in a way. They they played good football, but they were they were direct in a good way, and that's exactly what he was. He he had two tricks. He he was quick, and he came inside and had a shot, or he was quick and he got to the to the byline and put a cross in. No no airs and graces, nothing fancy. He did what he did best, and and I think that really sums up that Manchester United team for me. They they weren't overly complicated. They perhaps didn't have any great tactics. Um, but they uh, they use the best of the weapons that they had, and I think for me, Kanchelskis doesn't get as much credit as he mm. deserves yeah, from agree. that Manchester United team that he played in. I mean, the only added the only added one player as well that season, yeah. and that was Kane from Forest. Well, they broke the, the know, transfer so, records for him, didn't they? Yeah, was it three point seven five? I think yeah, it was. Yeah, something along those lines. Um, yeah, and and if you if you just if you think that was all all they added, and, and that was you know the real start of, of the bluster in Manchester United dominating the league, you know, and as we'll talk later on, dominating Europe. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, look, um, Roy Keane, yeah, transfer record there, and yeah, I think they beat off Blackburn to sign him, didn't they? But yeah, big signing for him. Um, that switched the table then, and we go look at the other end of the ninety three ninety four table and the relegation battle. Before we talk Everton, mainly with Mark there, uh, let's talk just quickly about Swindon because they came up to the Premier League with Glenn. Oh, yeah, oh, poor Swindon. Um, Glenn Hoddle left for Chelsea pretty quickly, but it didn't even get a chance to have a sniff of Glenn Hoddle with Swindon in the Premier League, and John Gorman took over. Uh, 100 goals conceded, pretty much relegated very early on, Mark. Um, Swindon Town didn't really make a, a blip on the Premier League radar in the end, did they? No, they didn't. And and they they achieved exactly what everybody expected to. And they've kind of become the benchmark by which all terrible Premier League yeah. seasons are measured against. And it, even accounting for the three or four times Sunderland have tried to eclipse it, <laughs> Swindon still hold that, uh, hold that accolade. Yes, and Derby. Didn't Dar- Derby still the record points? I was going to points. say there was a yeah. season with Derby. Was it 11 mm. points, I think, they got up? But the only thing Swindon did do that season, they did the double over QPR. Cheers for that, Swindon. Um, <laughs> your memories of Swindon, Joe? I mean, I remember the only things I keep remembering about them is goals against them other than that double over QPR. But I remember Ian well, Wright scoring against the- them. I remember them getting hammered by Liverpool in that white and green kit as well. I remember that. Um, yeah, I remember reading, I think, I think the Sun might have done a double-page spread on Fraser Digby at the time who I think was their keeper and he was he was claiming that uh, only only three of the hundred goals they let in were his fault. So, so that kind of sticks out. And of course, um, one of my favourite ever Middlesbrough players, 
uh, was probably the standout player for them that year, and apart from maybe Sean Moncur uh, and that uh, Jan Agafiotov. Of course, yeah, doing stuff for BT uh, Sport now as well. Yeah, yeah, um, obviously very well respected pundit all over Europe. Um, but yeah, Jan Fiotov doing the old Dan Buster celebrations on the odd occasion when he scored. Uh, but no, I mean bless them. They've never actually properly recovered from it, really, have the the vote of sort of it's been a slow decline ever since. Sorry, Swindon fans. I did meet some very nice Swindon fans at the playoff final once when the uh, when we were playing Norwich. I'm not quite sure why they were there. Yeah, it's a bit of a random day out to see the playoff <laughs> final. Very strange. But, um, was that the but, year yeah, that, that um, Yang Al thought of kissed Tim Flowers? Was that when he was playing for that Swindon? Was, that, that was when he was at Borough. Oh, was that a Borough? Yeah, it was a Borough. Yeah. Okay. Um, so Swindon went down pretty early on in the season and then the relegation battle, I mean, unbelievably, let's talk Everton now, you were very much in it till the last day, Mark. I mean, Howard Kendall resigned in December and then Mike mm-hmm. Walker took over. We'll talk a bit more about Mike Walker in a bit with Norwich, but his spell at Everton was the end of pretty much what we saw of Mike Walker in football. What went wrong at Goodison in that second half of the season? Well, it, I like the huge and take a breath there, Mark. <laughs> I know. I, I, I'm not exactly sure how much tape you've got to record this podcast, but the um, I think he he he'd obviously been such a success at Norwich, and people have given him lots of credit for his tactical nous and his man management and, and everything else. And he came to Everton, and he kind of quickly got the reputation as that he was more interested in topping up his suntan than he was in in setting out a defensive strategy or whatever. Um, and it, to be fair, when he came in, there was a period of six games that I think we lost six on the bounce or we, we didn't score six in six on the bounce um, when Jimmy Gabriel had been the um, the caretaker manager. So he came in and things were pretty rock bottom um, when he came in. But we, we were still quite quite clear of the relegation zone at the time, I think. But he came in, we, we thrashed Swindon early on, which made you think, oh, you know, that things are going to uh, go on the upturn. Was that the, was that the 6-2? It was the six two, yeah. When yeah. when incredibly, even Brett Angel scored, and that yeah, that tells something about Swindon. Um, so if you can get Brett Angel to score, you must be a miracle worker. But the after that, it all went all went downhill, and he lost the players very quickly. I mean, I've read many many comments from people like Neville Southall, Graeme Stewart, and and a few others who basically said he alienated the players very quickly. He certainly didn't understand what it was he was trying to get across to them. Um, when he actually did turn up in uh, for the training ground to to coach the players, <clears throat> um, so yeah, come the end of the season, I think we we didn't. I think we won one of the last ten, something like that. And from a period of of mid table or a, a status of mid table safety, we just went into this death spiral that saw us second bottom. I think needing to win that game and against Wimbledon on the final day. And about three or four of the teams, we needed the results to go our way, which, you know, considering the predicament we were in, it was, it, it looked odds on that Everton were going to go down for the first time in 40 odd years. Yeah, the, the game sticks out in everyone's memory, doesn't it? Graham Stewart, Graham Stewart getting the goals, Barry, was it Barry Horn as well getting the other one. Mm. Um, I mean, as you say, you expected to go down. So what was the euphoria like for knowing? Because that was such a tight relegation battle because if you look at the final table there was only three points that separated 15th to 20th place so there was a mm. number of teams that could have gone down on the last day it ended up being Sheffield United who lost to Chelsea but I mean how close were you to believe it was happening and even in those last moments as Stuart was scoring 
Well, I mean, you mentioned Sheffield United. They were relegated in injury time yeah. at Chelsea in the final. At the expect well, Ipswich stayed up. Sheffield United went down. And I think un- until Graeme Stewart scored the winner in our game with about 10 minutes to go, I think we were still down. Um, so we, we needed that goal, even accounting for the results going our way. But we were, we were two down within 20 minutes, playing terribly. I remember, I remember at home listening to it on, on Radio 5, and thinking, how was I going to go and, and face my friends who were all Newcastle fans? Because I live in the northeast um, at the time. And Newcastle, of course, were on the up around that time. Everton were down in the dumps, like you wouldn't believe, in, in all manner of speaking. And how was I going to say, yeah, I don't mind going to Grimsby on a Tuesday night and, and all that kind of bluster. Um, and... I'd, I'd sounds, like, it. sounds like my life now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Middlesbrough, yeah, sounds like Middlesbrough every few years, I think. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd actually accepted it. But Limpar bought a penalty very soon after he we went 2-0 down. Um, so at half-time, even though we were still losing, there was some degree of hope. Um, and it was certainly tied up in the fact that um, Wimbledon missed, and particularly Hold, Dean Holdsworth, who was on fire that season, he missed three or four absolutely golden opportunities to bury Everton for good. Yeah, but it was it, it wasn't to be for Everton. I mean, Joe, you mentioned that you, you you'd say there, but what do you remember about that day? I mean, I remember it being massive. I remember the kind of before we had suit like Sky's end of the season, you know, six screen, blah blah blah. This this could have been that one of those days because it was really that was close. all on Saturday. It was all on Saturday afternoon, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, before we moved yeah. to Sunday, and they're all the same time. It's it's one of those that stands out for me. Yeah, I mean, Everton was such a funny side. I mean, they scored the... Uh, you can tell I was just watching the video before we came about, but they scored the first goal of the season. Um, and, and they were doing things like winning the uh, Liverpool, the Merseyside derby quite easily in the, the game where uh, McManaman and Grobble had a bit of uh, handbags between themselves. But then they'd go on and get beat 5-1 at home by uh, Norwich, you know, so sort of really peculiar things like that. But that day... I was a bit of an um, Everton fan at the t- uh, at the time because uh, this is where I dropped dropped my name. Uh, my cousin was playing at Everton at the time. Oh yeah, uh, Mister Mister Beagree, and um, <laughs> so I had a bit of a, a bit of a sly a, a sly enjoyment of them. And I I thought they were curtains. I thought they were done. You know, it's one of them ways. You know, you sit and work out the permutations, and only the most sort of incredibly faithful final go. Oh yeah, we're out, we're out of this. We're all right. You're all right. And then. Um, when it all came came together at the end and, and Mike Walker sort of saving his life by <laughs> the skin of his teeth that day, you thought that Everton would go and, go and kick on and under him and they kind of didn't, but also that's a story for next time. Um, so, yeah, very pleased. Obviously, a little bit of an Everton fan on the slide and uh, incredible day. It, it just it, great escapes. It's, that's got to be up there as one of the greatest ones of all time, hasn't it? I can't... I think yeah, the know, West Brom one is talked about a lot, isn't it? I think, but that's more because it's modern era and Sky, like I said, had the sixth camera yeah. of the day. But I think this was right up there because the amount of teams that could have gone down on the last day. Joe mentioned there, Mark, that Mike Walker did survive somehow that season. Mm. I mean, how did that happen, <laughs> firstly? And what didn't he do at Everton that he did so well at Norwich? Do you think it was that Norwich, he'd found a club that worked for him? No disrespect to Norwich, a smaller club than Everton, and it just didn't work at, at, at Goodison Park? <laughs> Yeah, I, th- I think there may have been a, 
an element that he thought he'd made it when he came to Everton that he didn't have to work hard and and I think at Norwich he'd have he'd had to have built that side himself whereas when he came into Everton he came in with a bunch of players who were on bigger money bigger expectation bigger egos um and I, I don't think he could handle the situation I think that was mostly the the problem and as you say he, the, the following season he got a reprieve People were willing to give him a second chance. They were more willing to blame the the apathy and the lack of investment from the board of directors at the time, which had really stymied Everton for the previous three or four years, actually, before uh, we were taken over by Peter Johnson. But that's another um, tangled story to, to speak about for yourselves in the future. Uh, but, yeah, very quickly, the following season, it was apparent that what happened in 93-94 wasn't just a blip. It was actually something more deep-rooted with... Mike Walker's relationship with the players that meant he had to eventually be moved on for Joe Royal to come in. Mm. It says a lot that we've not seen Mike Walker do pretty much anything since other than support his son who's still got the same haircut from the 90s. Um, <laughs> That's a classic Curtains haircut, you know. You shouldn't be mocking that. Well, I'm just I'm proud that he's still rocking it. Him and Jerry Francis are not ever changing hairdos, are they? Fair play to him. <laughs> um, but no, he never did recover from that, but... Let's keep on the Mike Walker sort of trend because earlier in the season, before that fateful sort of departure and on to Everton, because he was Norwich manager. They'd finished in the top three of the season before in the Premier League, quite surprisingly, qualified for Europe. And in that, in Europe, they pulled off one of the biggest results, not just in, in their history, but in English football at the time, especially in the Olympic Stadium in Munich. They beat Bayern Munich with Jeremy Goss scoring an absolute worldie. We've discussed it previously on our European Nights pod. Go back in the archive and, and get and listen to that. We spoke to Donald Parrish, our Norwich fan. But we've got three neutrals here. I mean, Joe, what are your memories of, of that night and that amazing result for, for Norwich? The Jeremy Goss folly from outside the box. Oh, That's a... the thing that just everybody remembers, even even more so than, I think it was it Mark Bourne got the, got the second yeah, one. Yeah, poor old Mark the, Bowen. <laughs> the bullet header that never gets remembered. But yeah. Obviously, Jeremy Goss scored in both games as well, scored in the away, scored in the away leg, which came first, and the, the home leg, um, secondly, which ended up being the decisive goal, I think, thereabouts. Yeah. Um, but yeah, obviously the Jeremy Goss uh, volley from outside the box, from outside the box, just absolutely go down in history, and rightfully so. It's results like that, Mark, that made you probably excited for Mike Walker because it was such a, an amazing turnaround for Norwich. Um, obviously, they went out in the next round into Milan, but that night lives long in the memory, doesn't it? It does, and it, it, yeah, the, the result on the night was a surprise. But for the for, again for the previous two or three years, Norwich had threatened to to win the league on a couple of occasions and you think I think back to how good particularly Rule Fox and, and Chris Sutton were as a partnership up front for them and and Joel mentioned them coming to Goodison and stuffing us 5-1 um, and they, they repeated that they won the last ever game in front of the cop I think um, in 90 was it 93, 94 yeah, maybe? I think it was yeah yeah yeah, 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 um, yeah. and they, they weren't averse to, to some big results um, so and although Bayern Munich, of course, they had some great players, I don't think they were quite the the side they'd been just previously, previous to that, and of course what they are nowadays. But but still, for for little old Norwich City to have gone to a, a European giant, and and you've got to remember that they knocked out a, quite a decent Vitesse Arnhem side in the yes, round before in the that. Round before, yeah. So um, yeah, it was great for a, a small town to live in Norwich and used to go and see them from time to time. Um, Amazing thing to happen for for a club like that. And wearing one of the most memorable kits of the 90s as well. We can't not mention that. The bird poo kit of the oh, 90s. Oh, dear. 
Now, I don't owe oh dear. It's a fantastic. I love the fact that they've kind of celebrated this season with that awful third kit. It's absolutely brilliant. Well done, Eero. That's their kit. Why do you ever need a third kit anyway? It makes me laugh. But yeah, that's, you know, let's talk about lesser back kits because we'll be here all day. Um, Talking uh, of Norwich and Europe, I mean, it wasn't just Norwich celebrating that season as well. Arsenal were successful in Europe. They won the UEFA, uh, no, sorry, the Cup Winners' Cup with a goal from Alan Smith and a win against Palmer. And that was a, a success for them. Um, so Europe round was good. Um, let's talk quickly about Borough because although it wasn't really a memorable season in terms of on-pitch, you were in the, the first division at the time. Promotion yeah. wasn't likely, but the, the headline news that season for, for Borough and a big move for football indeed, because not only did it involve the former England captain, it involved one of the best pitchers of the 90s. We've talked about it many times <laughs> on this podcast, the classic half and half from Brian Robson. But how big a deal for a Borough fan was it to see the arrival of Brian Robson? Um, I, I think, like I said earlier on with with um, Chelsea, and, it became, and it, they became the modern Chelsea that we know now, you sort of see to that were planted. Although obviously Middlesbrough haven't had anywhere near as much success. Um, it, it started the middle football club that you know right now at the Riverside Stadium, and everything that came after that. The you know everybody says the Janinos, the Ravenelli's, um, stuff, European finals, cup finals, and all that. And none of it, none of it would have happened without Brian Robson. I think, I think he's forgotten. Forgotten's the right word, but probably not appreciated as much as he should be by uh, a lot of the Middlesbrough fans who certainly were around at the time. I was there for his, his last game in charge when him and Terry Venables were sort of jointly in charge of the club. And Robson got booed. And I think it's probably the most shameful thing I've seen from the crowd during my time as a Middlesbrough fan. He, he came in and he, you know, he said himself, the streets of Middlesbrough were full of kids in Liverpool shirts and Manchester United shirts. You don't see that now. Everybody in the town is behind the club. And it all starts with Steve Gibson a point in Brian Robson. I mean, he was gonna he was gonna try and stick with Lenny Lawrence. But you, have I told the Robert Lee story before about when we try to sign Robert Lee? I, I, think you, I think you've told me, but I don't know if we've heard it on here. So go on. Well, yeah, we um, Lenny Lawrence was uh, in charge at Middlesbrough, and we tried to sign um, Robert Lee. And obviously, um, Kevin Keegan had, had gone in for him at the same time, and Keegan had persuaded Robert Lee that Newcastle was closer to London than Middlesbrough was. <laughs> and of course, it isn't. But he, t- he t- said, oh, well, you can get a plane from here and we can chart you down and all that. And that was when Steve Gibson just went, hold on, if, we, if we'd had a big name in, in charge, we probably would have got him. But, you know, Lenny Lawrence can't, he can't get Robert Lee to come and sign for us. So it was then he decided to make the change. And it was, he sort of decided that we'd have to totally rebuild Essen Park or build something new. And he, and he went for broke and got uh, sold Brian Robson on the on the prospect I mean obviously everybody knew at the time that the idea was he was going to come to Borough he was probably going to do two or three years and then go and take over at Manchester United as I think Middlesbrough's potentially been a training ground for a couple would-be Manchester United managers that hasn't happened but that was the original plan but there would there wouldn't Middlesbrough Football Club wouldn't be the club they are today without Brian Robson coming and that's that's it and I think a lot of fans will probably do well to remember that sometimes Mark, do you remember this moment and do you remember that picture? I mean, we've put it on our Twitter feed many a times of uh, Brian Robson, half a suit and half a playing kit. Player managers, it's obviously very 90s as well. Brian Robson was such a massive name and a massive move for him, wasn't it? Mm, yeah, in terms of the picture, yeah, it was one of those manufactured newspaper things where I think he had his full kit on and, and a blazer, is that right? Yeah, oh no, shirt and tie as well. Had it, had it, but, yeah. what, but what always struck me was he was doing keepy ups and he had that whole garb on, but he had no boots on. No. Yay! <laughs> that's what bothers me the most. 
he could decide between loafers and boots maybe in the half and half yeah um but yeah the, i mean you you have to think back just what was it eight years earlier for middlesbrough and what happened to them um going bankrupt well having to go through all the stuff about going bankrupt and steve gibson coming in at the last minute and and, and basically saving them, and then they were up and down a little bit in their famous shirt with the sponsored by Dickens, the handywear place, mm. which I still think is one of my favourite shirts ever. Dickens Home Improvement Hypermarket. So there you go. <laughs> that one, yeah. And they were um, they were a canny team again. They they were always good at producing good players. You think back to the late eighties, early nineties teams with Pallister, Ripley. They had um, uh, Stephen Pears in goal. Oh, uh, Slaven. Bernie Slaven, yeah, and and you know a lot of good players. John Hendry, I think, was there, and then in the nineties again, Robson came in and was the draw to bring in players like Juninho, um, and, and get Middlesbrough up to the Premier League just in time for them having the Riverside ready, and um, it was it was quite a story, and it was a shame it it turned out so badly for Middlesbrough and particularly Brian Robson because I think the way it ended, as Joel said, it it was it didn't quite sit right, and I think it was. A stain that Robson probably never was able to to remove from his managerial CV for not really doing anything particularly wrong. I don't think. No, he never. I think what I think what he did was at the very end is that he uh, he realised that he'd probably been there too long, uh, but wanted to see the job through. And he, I think, it takes a brave man to sort of stand up and go, right, I need help with this. And he mm. went and got the best man he could have possibly done. But obviously, that's a story for another day. Yeah, we'll talk very much about Venables in just a second. Before, let's tie this bow around the, the football season. Middlesbrough weren't really, really, uh, promoted that season, but Palace and, and Forest were. Um, the top scorer in the Premier League was Andy Cole on 34 goals and was named PFA Young Player he of the Season. He scored 41 goals altogether that season. Yeah, Paul. mental. Do you know what? He wasn't even in the team of the season. Unbelievable. The, the, He's just had a kidney transplant, so we should give Andy Cole we should, a shout yeah. out. We wish him his best. But the PFA team that year was Flowers, Kelly, Pallister, Adams, Irwin, Ince, McAllister, Batty, Shearer, Cantona and Beardsley. I mean, that's a front three to frighten many, but how can you not be in the team of the season scoring that many goals and being the young player of the year? Cantona, as I said, was PFA. Alan Shearer won Football Writers Award. And, and Man United, of course, won the double. And Villa won the League Cup. But we're going to switch before we go to the end of the show, to a little bit of international talk, because obviously it was a big season uh, at the end of the campaign with World Cup 94. But before we get to that, let's talk a little bit about England, because we can't really ignore what happened that season. Uh, starting with the 13th of October 1993, that night in Rotterdam, do I not like that, and Graham Taylor. I mean, Ronald Koeman still, you know, still get away with it, but a miserable, miserable time for being an England fan, wasn't it, Joel? Oh God, not fun at all. Especially Ronald Koeman. Take the free kick twice, was it? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I tried to, I tried to delete it from my, uh, delete it from my mind as much as possible. Uh, but yeah, not, not an interesting time. But uh, better times were round the corner, I suppose, with uh, the next gentleman that you're going to talk about. That it, indeed, it was. Just, I mean, I remember watching the England Holland game. This is a random memory. I was in the New Forest with my family on a family holiday, and it was absolutely bucketing down with rain and we were in this little cabin that was rocketing and I think the clubhouse or something like that had put it on this tiny little TV so <laughs> even more horrible memories for me being on a really bad family holiday watching that Graham Taylor obviously resigned I mean it was a bad time as I said to, to Joel Marks being England fam and it didn't work for Graham Taylor even when we needed those seven goals against San Marino and we yeah. conceded that one after nine seconds mm. the, going back to the Holland game I think the words and he's, go, he's going to flick one yeah. is probably going to haunt People of our era who watched uh, England during that, uh, that the awful early 90s, um, I think those words are going to haunt us till we die. 
Yeah, I very, I very, very vividly. Yeah, was that Barry Davis? No, it was ITV, wasn't it? So Brian Moore. There we go. The great, great Brian Moore. Good shout there. So, and then we didn't qualify. So then we had this vacancy. Taylor resigned after much stick. You know, we know all about the turnip stuff that the Sun rolled out and stuff. But many names were linked with the England job. We had. Kevin Keegan, Jerry Francis at QPR turned the job down, allegedly. But Terry Venables was the man appointed in January 94. Uh, right choice? I mean, in hindsight, of course it was. But at the time, guys, did you think that was the right choice for England? Well, they were. I mean, there was lots of talk about... Because um, he'd just been... Venables had just been fired from Tottenham yeah. for uh, financial irregularities. So that was the kind of thing... That was the air that was hanging around... Um, was was hanging around Terry Venables at the time and so and the FA still you know as we've just seen with Allardyce just anything that's dodgy like that it's amazing amazing to me that they put him in in the first place um, they just they obviously went in with a football mind rather than an everything else mind uh, and Venables was no doubt the, the man for the job but yeah um, he did he did have that sort of that air of dodginess didn't he God bless him Terry and I love him um but yeah, very. Um, it's. I, I don't think it's something that the FA would do now, particularly put in a character who, uh, regardless of their football talent, sort of had that air about them or that that sort of bit of baggage with them. I guess certainly not after Big Sam. Mark, what, did you think Terry Venables was the man at the time? He was. I mean, he'd won the FA Cup for Tottenham a couple of years before. He he got the best out of people like Lineker and Gascoigne when they were there. I mean, anybody who can go from Queens Park Rangers to Barcelona, amazing. Um, must have something about them. You know, that's quite a that's quite a big leap. Yeah. Um, not massive. So yeah, he got he got he got the nation behind him almost from the beginning because I think it, uh, for some reason as England fans we're always a bit um, obsessed with or with people with this sort of character. You know, it's the only reason Harry Redknapp ever got mentioned for the for the England job is because we want this down-to-earth guy you would expect to see as Del Boy's mate in Only Fools and Horses to be the England manager rather than the Graham Taylor or the Steve McLaren type who were a bit too straight-laced. I mean, we've got Gareth Southgate now and, the, if you know, grey strip, grey personality springs to mind for him. So he's hardly, oh. he's hardly an inspiring choice. But all, we talk, like, hold on, all we're talking about is Middlesbrough managers. Again. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, so um, you know, Terry Venables was kind of the, the man who who got the nation behind him just because of his cheeky chap Cockney persona, you know? And so I think he was, I, he was sorry, very un FA. He, he was very un FA like, um, uh, appointments as it's kind of, you were alluding to there, Ash. Go on, yeah. I think that, I think that the FA were, were probably still a little bit burned by the fact that they hadn't appointed Brian Clough in the seventies. So I probably think there was a bit of that as a way to show the public is we will put the best football man in charge. We will, you know, we'll we'll do it this way. We'll listen to the people, you know, uh, you know, which obviously they also listened to the people when it came to Kevin Keegan, which probably wasn't the brightest move. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I, I definitely think there was a certain amount of hangover from the fact that Clough was always, you know, the greatest manager that England never had, um, and and I think he wasn't taken in, given the job because of his mouthiness and 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 the way he was. Uh, so I think that Venables was kind of a another way of the FA showing the country, yes, we will listen to you. You know, we'll we'll base it on football only rather than just you know. Obviously, I think we've gone back the other way now. But yeah, um, just the the, the grey suited man sort of thing. Yeah. The the other thing about Venables, I think, is the because it was on the build up to Euro '96. I think the FA realised that they had they had um, height to build and tickets to sell. Yes, of course. And I think an English manager who 
who could certainly talk a good game and probably get a better game out of the players than, than Taylor had done. I think if you think of from a financial standpoint and a marketing standpoint, I think he was also ticking those boxes at a time when there were probably very few others who were. But then he had, the, he, I mean, he, he looked quite, um, he, he looked quite stubborn, didn't he? You know, the, obviously the Christmas tree formation and mm. everybody was like, we don't get this. We don't, we, and we've talked about this in the year and 96 pod, but um you know, he was. It, it, there was a bit of uh, sheen starting to come come off old Terry um, mm. during his time in in the warm up games and everything. But then, obviously, it all came together nearly perfectly in, in Euro '96. But you know, I think I think if another manager had come in and probably played those tactics, he wouldn't have got away with it so much because it was Venables who was who was you know in a football way very honest and was prepared to talk and explain what his plans were, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, that uh, the public would accept it a bit more. We were, and obviously we were on the floor as well. We wanted a cheeky, chappy face, and that's what we got in Terry Venables. But it did work out well. We'll talk about that more in future pods. And as Joel said, go back and listen to our Euro 96 pod as well, where we did two on that. So that we did really dissect that tournament in all its detail and all its glory. Um, talking of tournaments, though, World Cup 94 was the end of that season. It's one of my favourite World Cups. Yes, I'm going to say it. Get your bingo cards out. The greatest kit of all time was in that tournament. That have, you, have you got that friend? It's hanging up. It's not framed. It's it is hanging up. I'm literally looking at it as I say. It's hanging up Uh in all its thickness. (laughs) One of the thickest things I've ever felt in my life. How they played in that heat, as I say every time. But World Cup USA '94. um, In that pod, actually, we spoke to Danny Ramakachi. There's an Everton link for you there, Mark, which was was a good interview. Um, What are your memories, guys, uh, of USA '94? There's we we talked many on the pod itself, but just a few highlights for you first, Mark. Um, Diana Ross. (laughs) Yes, it's it's the instant belt, isn't it? Well, I yeah, think about the babetto, the hand swing, the baby swing. That's the baby, the baby rocking celebration, yeah. Yeah. The child now plays for some club in Brazil. It's just heartbreaking. Yeah, major. Sorry, sorry, Mark, interrupting you. Yeah, no, the other thing I think was um, the Saudi Arabia and, and Saeed Al Awairan and his classic goal against Belgium. I think that that's, that's probably my standout, or one of the standout moments of that tournament for me. Well remembered and pronounced as well. Joe, uh, other than the baby rocking, what, what are your favourite memories from USA 94? Uh, I just always remember that the final was woeful, wasn't it? The final oh, was terrible really, final. And it was it was meant to be, that was going to be the one that, so, you know, that probably set football back in America about four years, that final. And it was Baggio, wasn't it, that missed the penalty at the end. The divine ponytail. Well, it was, it was uh, that, and that's and obviously the, the Adam. Yeah, and and Ireland. Obviously, we all became Irish during um, during that competition. So obviously, the Ireland games. Yeah, the Ray Houghton goal against Italy is a, is a famous one, and the Brazil team obviously who won the World Cup. I mean, I had a Brazil kit at the time, and, and I said in, my, in the top five kit pod we did a few episodes ago that kit's one of my top fives, both the home and the away kit. The away kit's obviously mm-hmm. famous for the for the baby rocking celebration. I'm actually wearing a top sitting here that's uh, from Mundial magazine. Lack of guidance has got the logo from the World Cup '94 uh, on it as well, so um, that just happened to have nice chemistry there. Um, but yeah, World Cup '94, one of my favourite tournaments um, at the end of that season. Go back and listen to to the pod where we dissect it greatly at, at last season. I think that's one of our highest rated shows actually as well. So yeah, go back and listen to that. Um, before we get onto our new feature that we're going to get a jingle for at some point, is there anything we haven't mentioned, guys, that you wanted to roll out for 93, 94? Coming to you first, Joel. Uh, you know what? I think we've got everything. I was going to say, it was the year that Francis Lee took over at Manchester yep. City. Bought 30% of the club. How much? How much did 30% of Manchester City cost you in 1993? Well, uh, inflation is a funny thing, especially in football. Now, I'm, I'm not, I couldn't even take a stab to be honest. Go on, surprise us all. Three million quid. Yeah. But 30%. Francis Lee obviously didn't make his money through, um, didn't make his money 
through football or the, the vast amount of his money made his fortune through selling toilet paper. So there you go. There's a little fact for you. That's a good and fact. obviously it was the it was the year that Roy Evans took over at um, Liverpool. It was Roy after, Evans. Uh, who's been on the show? Yeah. After Grimson S left, so yeah, so that was a, a couple of things we haven't mentioned. No, and Alan Ball taking over. There was a quite and, a few uh, as, was, like, as I was doing research myself this morning. There was quite a lot of managerial changes that season. A lot of tidbits here and there, and I think people, you know, it became more of the norm. I think before that, you didn't get as many managerial seconds in the season, but it started to creep in come ninety three, ninety four. Because I think <laughs> the first, first season of the Premier, the Premier League, Ian Porterfield was the first manager sacked, and that, that didn't happen until sort of January, February time. So it, it became a mm. thing after that. I think um, as as well, uh, like I said, I went I went and watched the BBC's review of the year with wonderful Barry Davies um, doing the voiceover, and he sort of suggested, was it the year that was it the year that the fans got what they wanted because yeah. they were they were uh, chanting against um, Ian Branford at Southampton and and all the business at Manchester City and all the business at Liverpool. So they're saying there was a lot of sort of fan power being displayed this season. Um, there was there is a very funny clip if you want to go and find it um, that I've written down. Uh, on the opening day of the season, Villa brought in a tenor into the dressing room to go to see sing Nessan Dorma at them to try to hype them up. And there's this guy just bellowing away. And you see Dean Saunders in the background put like both hands over his ears. <laughs> so that is worth going to hunt out on YouTube if you can. Mark, for you, anything we haven't mentioned from 1993 and 94? Um, I think that this was the year that uh, BBC first started using the Lightning Seeds song, The Life of Riley, oh, okay. for the oh, whole of good. the month. Uh, which, to me, even now, uh, and I know they've used it this season as well in a kind of nostalgia nod towards those times, um, even now when I think of Goal of the Month, I can only think of the opening yeah. sort of stanza of that song. And if I shut my eyes and think of the song, the only thing I can see is Matthew Letizia <laughs> banging goals in against Blackburn and uh, Newcastle and anybody else you care to mention. Uh, well, Rod Wallace that season, he he won the goal of the season for that tricky sort of run against Tottenham, sort of late in the summer, it's April, and that's, I think, because it was happened the other day, actually, we, we put a post on, on the Twitter feed, at AK90, so yeah, that would have been that goal that got the goal of the month treatment. The only other couple of things I wanted to mention, I mean, it was the year Matt Busby died as well, uh, very sad, obviously, a legendary May United name from the past. Um, you mentioned opening day there, um, Joe, it made me think as well, Mickey Quinn, his three goals against uh, Arsenal, which... Good. Arsenal, yeah. Yeah, which he likes to mention quite a lot if you listen to him on Dog Sport and, and on this podcast <laughs> uh, early on last season we talked, spoke to Mickey Quinn and he does like to big himself up, bless him. Um, so that's now... Why does he obviously do that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's big enough. Uh, that's finish off of our brand new feature. Um, Joe, we dabbled in this a little bit before but we kind of made it a proper feature from last week and we got a couple yeah. of belters from the guests. Um, I'm calling it 19s players that time forgot. Um, so Mark, let's kick off with you. Tell us a name and let's try and remember if we, if we can see what you've come up with. Torben Picnic. Hey, that's a good one. And what are your memories of Torben Picnic, Mark? Uh, that he was awful. And uh, <laughs> just as Liverpool were on the decline, he was made the primary scapegoat for their troubles, even even ahead of Sunnis most of the time. So for that, God bless you, Torben. It was a very strange time for Liverpool in the signings, wasn't it? Because I remember this season they signed Julian Dix as well. And I always find that's a very bizarre signing that was as well. Not, not that he's obscure, but it was just doesn't seem very Liverpool at all. Uh, Joel, how about you? Throw us an obscure name. I see you know this because I texted you it last night. <laughs> Go on. Orlando, Orlando Trustful. Oh, it's a beauty. <laughs> it's a be- remind the listeners of, of Orlando Trustful's Premier League record. 
Uh, I think he played about 19 or 20 times for Sheffield Wednesday. Uh, Dutch midfielder, very tidy beard, as I remember. I think he scored twice or three times. I think three times altogether. But yeah, Orlando, trustful. Got him from, uh, I think he went to Vitesse Arnheim. Last seen as Frank de Beer's assistant at Inter Milan. Oh, there you go. You're all about the facts, though. You sent me a great fact last night about Clayton Blackmore as well. Go on, tell the people that. Oh, Clayton Blackmore. Oh, yeah, this is good. Clayton Blackmore, in his time at Manchester United, played in every position on the pitch apart from goalkeeper. There Brilliant. you go. I'll, do, do you want to? Do you want that picture again that I tweeted last night? Oh, that's a bit eighties, isn't it? It is a bit eighties. Yeah. We found this picture, this remarkable picture of Clayton Blackmore with a very curly perm and a lovely tash. He looks very... a little bit more, a little bit more like he should be a Liverpool player of the time rather yeah, than perhaps a Manchester United. Yeah. Player. We're going to try and get him on the pod and ask him about that for sure. Uh, well, that's well, I think that's about it, gents. Thank you very much. I mean, that's leave with a little more plug for the football pink as well, Mark. Um, what is in? We haven't we discussed the issue, but what can we see in the issue? What sort of articles? I know Matthew Christ has contributed, who's been on the pod the last couple of episodes. What else can we get in this nineties issue of the football pink? That's right. Matthews does uh, something about the um, much missed or much hated Anglo Italian oh, Cup, yes, depending on your point of view. Oh, we uh, know that. Yeah, uh, we have something about Jeremy Goss and Janino. You'll be pleased to hear, Joel. Uh, and his Wonderful. his um, effect of his time at Middlesbrough. Uh, we look at Graham Taylor and how he kind of redeemed himself after it looked like maybe his career was finished with England. Um, I, I've written something about the link between music and football at the time, which the two married very closely together. Yeah. Um, we look at some of the old stadiums of, of Archie Leach, Archibald Leach design, that uh, disappeared in, in the decade. Um, and lots of other different bits and bobs, uh, stuff about how, how we got to where we are now in the early 90s and the Taylor Report and uh, uh, getting rid of all the old things that used to used to plague football in the 80s to set us up for what came afterwards. So hopefully it's going to be something that people enjoy to read, both from a, uh, a nostalgic point of view, but also um, you know some real credible good stuff in there too. Sounds great. I mean, you said music. Where can you get it? Yeah, go on. I was going to come to that, Joel. Go, all right, go where can Sorry, you get it? I, was just wondering. <laughs> I want to get uh, it. Yeah, you can visit our website, which is uh, footballpink.net, and uh, there's a link in there. Or our online shop is uh, thefootballpink.bigcartel.com. And you're on Twitter and Facebook and all that, I imagine, too. Indeed, yeah. Yes. Uh, I was just going to ask, you You mentioned your music and football article. I mean, what's the what's the best of the 90s of the music and the football com- combination? We did a music pod last season. Mm-hmm. Joe, you were on that one, weren't you, I think, if I remember early? Yeah, um, I did that one, yeah. And we did, we spoke about some corkers, but what's the favourite of yours, Mark? Well, obviously, we've mentioned uh, Life of Riley there. And, of course, you can't think of football in the 90s and, and music without thinking of uh, World in Motion and Ness and Dorma from the 1990 World Cup. But I think of I think perhaps the one that often sticks out in my mind is um, the song "I Never Want an Easy Life If Me and He Were Ever to Get There." Charlatans by the Charlatans, which which was the 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 theme tune of um, uh, Goals on Sunday. So that reminds me a lot of yeah, of waking up hungover in in other people's houses on a Sunday morning uh, and sticking <laughs> the sky on to watch the goals from the day before. Yeah, it's not. What do they have these days? Is it still Lionel Richie on the? Uh, goals on Sunday. That's what they do. I remember that's what they did at one point. I don't know if they still yeah, do it no, now. Yeah, no, I think they are still using that. Yeah, uh, not all together now. Wasn't that the the Everton FA Cup song of '95? If I remember rightly, it was. It was. It was done by the Farm. Obviously, re rehashing their their song from a few years earlier. But I think Peter Hooten, who's the lead singer of the Farm, is a Liverpool fan, a very mm. famous Liverpool fan. Uh, he didn't sing on the track. It was one of the other 
other members of the band sung the lyrics celebrating the Everton players of past and that's and good. Oh, I forgot to mention my. Obviously, we we Ian Wright do the right thing. Oh, terrible! I found out. I found out today it was written by um, Chris Law from the Pet Shop Boys. Really? Yeah. Such a terrible song and a terrible video. The five well, side of the disco he, never caught on. Yeah, he, he's, he's wearing the most incredible white suit, white nineties house music suit, and a hat. Tony Debart or somebody in a terrible hat. Terrible, yeah, terrible hat. Yeah. <laughs> Not a good, not a good look for Ian, right? Um, but yeah, I think we've pretty much wrapped up ninety three, ninety four. There, we've said where we can find the football pink. Joel, where can we find you on the social media? Oh, um, at Joel Baby Herc, J O E L B A B Y H E R C. It won't be, it won't be much fun at the minute because I'll be uh, mourning about Middlesbrough's impending doom quite a lot. So avoid it on Saturday afternoon, Sunday afternoons, Monday nights. But apart from that, I'm all right. He's all right. George Michael, bit of wrestling. Yeah, George Mike, always George Michael, always always wrestling. Yeah, and, and, and Middlesbrough Football Club. That's pretty much it. And pictures of me in pubs. Sounds good. Well, thank you very much, gents. Um, we'll be obviously moving on next episode and talking about the famous title race between Manchester United and Blackburn and that famous last day at Anfield, as well as a whole host of other stars from 94, 95. But thank you very much for joining us. My name's Ash Rose. And as always, keep it 90s.